Hello, I'm Trevor Smith welcoming you to Audio Mission Prayer Focus for February 2014. This month it's a Middle East special, though very much connected with mission in the UK too. The Reverend Basi Mazania is Anglican chaplain to the Persian community in the UK. On a recent visit to CMS, she chatted to Jim Barker about her own experience as a refugee from Iran and her own work today. I was a sort of very moderate Christian. I wasn't, it wasn't massively a big thing until I became a refugee myself because I sent my little girl then to this country to boarding school. And when revolution happened, it took over my home, my bank account, everything else for two reasons. One, I was working in the palace. My mm. name was on the list, top of the list. Mm. And two, I have been converted to Christian faith. Hmm. And for that reason, I was a few weeks in hiding. They blindfolded me from my own home, took me to a hiding place. And then uh, again, one day, I was blindfolded, taken to a car. I thought they were going to execute Hmm. me. Then I find myself in the middle of the airport in, in Tehran. I couldn't believe what was happening. And then one of the revolutionary guard who was doing all that, he was the son of my goldenhead. And I knew him when he was a tiny little boy. Mm. And I, I taught them, and I worked with them with their schoolwork or whatever. So he was obviously trying to help me. He was the one with his friends or whatever. He took me out of my own home to that hiding place. And he shuffled the passport to my hand because I was holding a diplomat passport. Over the last 10 years, Mm. I used to come in here. Six months before I came to England with my diplomat passport. And now I came with a man-made passport. Some information was not right, (laughs) whatever. I just came and arrived as a refugee, and that's how my life stopped. With the work I'm doing now, I am so, mm. so aware about what it means to become a refugee, what it means to live in exile, what does it mean to be driven from your own home, what does it mean to be frightened of your own people. Even when I was home the last four weeks of my life, I was a refugee in my own homeland. And that is how many million of these people in this planet have experienced misplaced, replaced, became refugee, thrown out of their own homeland, left their own homeland. And it's it's one of the phenomena now Mm. in this world which we, those who have not been through such drama and dramatic Mm. experience, they cannot, and we should not be too hard on other people. Just because you haven't experienced Mm. what I have, Mm. it doesn't mean that you are guilty of my misfortune. Uh, But it's good in such way, I feel, People at the church, in particular the Christian community, have to remember Jesus was the first refugee in this planet. From the birth, before he was born, he Mm. became a refugee because his parents were refugees. 
So if we are, we have to start from that point, walk with him through his human experience. Christianity is not just a good feeling and you know our best Sunday suit and we go and sing hallelujah and do a little bit of good. This is not, it's the way of the cross. And it's not supposed to be a, a sort of rosy, rosy garden we walked in. But if we truly believe God's hand is, is on us and he walked with us, he suffered with us, it's just so comforting. So with community I work with, with hmm. this ministry, I, I began to feel God has prepared me before I even imagined. I was laughing sometimes early days when I was ordained. I said, what do I do now? So now you're working with these refugee communities around the UK in various cities, communities which are forming and, and mm. you're helping to catalyse, I guess, in mm. some ways. Mm. What do you think it is about the gospel that helps answer mm. those sense, that sense of exile, that sense of I'm neither here nor there, mm. and both here and there mm-hmm. are alien to me? And how does the gospel help to resolve that in some way? I think uh, it's a good question because I actually preach on Peter's letter, especially the first letter addressed to the refugee community Hmm. in the early Christian Hmm. and telling them how they should see themselves not as a victim and how the gospel should empower them to see from within you may be a strip out of all your comfort and all the things which is, the, if you like, out of you, mm. but within you have now holding a treasure, <laughs> a found treasure which wasn't there. And so this has to empower you to stand up that you are not nobody, you are not even somebody, you are you and God sees you because you have now been found. It's like a prodigal son Mm. or daughter. Mm. And also, most of my work is encouraging this community, Mm -hmm. either by preaching individual encounter or whatever, that they do not live all their life as poor me. I'm Mm. a victim, please Mm. help. Let's pray for the Reverend Bassi as she encourages the Persian community in the UK and shares the riches of the Christian faith. Jordan is a land at the crossroads of the Middle East and in recent times has become a new home for huge numbers of refugees from the war in Syria. CMS mission partner Michael Green, who's worked in Jordan for almost 10 years, told Jeremy Woodham what it's like to live and work in such a hotspot. Although Jordan is very peaceful at the moment, I think we really need to pray that that peace will continue. Jordan has always been a land where refugees came to, going back to Pella, where the early Christian church ran to from persecution in Jerusalem and right through the Palestinians, the Iraqis, many others have come over the years. And it puts a strain on the country and they're feeling that strain once again. And that's coming on top of issues where people are feeling challenged about the way that, I mean, through the Arab Spring and and the way that uh, governments or certain people in the government have been involved in fraud. Generally, 
in Jordan that's gone pretty well but we just want to pray that that continues and particularly in localized areas like the south of Jordan and in Mafrak uh, those stresses are probably greater than in some other parts. You are right there uh, in the middle of some of the certainly in the middle of the region that really dominates our news an awful lot. We've had the Arab Spring and of course the Syrian war in the last few years. What is it like being right there in Jordan between all that? Yeah, as you say, um, Mafrak is crossroads. It's a very significant place. It's crossroads between the road from Baghdad to Haifa and from Damascus to Mecca. It's now also the location of the Azatri refugee camp, uh, which is filling our news screens on a regular basis. Yeah, it's expanding all the time. Uh, the last time I heard it was the fifth largest city in Jordan, um, and it's all tented. Um, and surprisingly, or maybe not, you can get most things there, although facilities are quite bare. Um, there's one bathroom to about 50 tents. Um, but a lot of people choose not to live there either because they have got money to go elsewhere or they have relations elsewhere um, or because um, of kind of internal turmoil between different groups from different parts of Syria. Um, so they live outside the camp without access to those facilities. And it is also particularly close to the border with Syria. It's only about 10 miles away within the sound of the gunfire still. And from my kitchen window, I can see the, the hills in Syria and uh, at night hear the, the gunfire and the rockets. You work in a, in a rather extraordinary hospital or sanatorium there. Is that uh, affected by the war on refugees? Well, we're affected indirectly, but not directly. So we have some relation with the International Office of Migration who do the health checks for everyone who comes into the refugee camps. Because uh, everyone is screened when they go into the camps, uh, we have a number of Syrians who uh, are brought to our hospital for treatment for tuberculosis or other chest diseases. Um, and in fact, there are some people who, in a bizarre way, their lives have been saved by the war because they didn't realize that they were sick with a disease that, if untreated, is fatal. And they've gone into the camp, they've been identified, they've come to us and received treatment. And that's your specialism at the hospital is, is chest diseases and particularly TB, is that right? Yeah, that's, that's right. We take a few other chronic diseases and also sometimes we take in Bedouin children in order to, to build them up if their families are struggling. But our, our focus is on chronic chest disease. And that means a rather different way of operating as a, as a medical institution than what people may imagine as a regular hospital here. Tell us a bit more about that. The kind of things that you normally imagine as going to hospital, often if we receive them, we pack them up in our ambulance and get them to a, an acute hospital as quickly as possible. Our patients will stay in with us for some length of time. And in fact, patients with multi-drug resistant tuberculosis can actually be with us for about two years. The reason that we focus on dealing with those people is in order that we can build up a relationship with them uh, and tell them about Jesus Christ. This seems slightly surprising uh, and amazing in a way from a, an outside perspective. Um, 
thinking in a Middle Eastern country of this explicitly Christian hospital with this mission to share about Jesus. How does that work? Is that uh, acceptable out there? I mean, what happens? Our proficiency and our, our loving care have made such a witness um, that we receive probably about 85 to 90 percent of all Jordan's tuberculosis cases. Uh, the Jordanian Office of Tuberculosis hold their Tuberculosis Day event with us and the royal family uh, often send us gifts as a way of saying thank you. Also the Kurdish Autonomous Region in northern Iraq, their health authority sends us all of their, com or many of their complex cases of tuberculosis while being aware that we are explicitly a Christian hospital. It is a unique opportunity, probably. Um, I'm not aware of anywhere else like it. Um, and while Jordan is a Muslim country, uh, and uh, we have within our work, we have maybe not exactly permission, but we have um, just the ability without being, with people being aware of it and without interfering with it, uh, to preach the gospel. We were going to cut Michael's interview there, but we couldn't resist hearing a little bit about the mission he's been involved in while on extended leave in the UK during 2013. Much to my surprise, I've ended up living in North London and working under the authority of the Bishop of Wilsdon in Brent and Ealing with a mission responsibility there. And also supporting two churches, uh, St James Anglican Church, which is a very mixed church in Alperton and also despite the title another very uh, mixed church which is uh, Living Waters uh, Arabic Anglican Church and a number of the people who go are not actually Arabic uh, some of them are Kurdish or Iranian but they they feel part of that Middle Eastern community so as well as supporting the work that both of those churches do uh, I've also done a lot of just work going into to cafes, chatting to people and building up relationships with the Arabic communities in Brent and Ealing. According to the 2011 census, there are actually uh, 21,234 Arabs in that area and probably many unrecorded as well. So there's a significant population there and, and just getting to know some of them. And I had a particularly interesting time during Ramadan just breaking fast um, regularly in a local cafe and getting to know the people in there. And that opened up opportunities for us to talk about what we believed to each other um, and to actually share. And for many of their misconceptions about what Christians believe uh, to actually be um, changed. Michael Green talking to Jeremy Woodham about Mission at Home and Away. In Lebanon, the religious situation is sensitive, so this mission partner will remain anonymous, but starts by telling us about the women's centre she worked at and why it's so needed. This particular women's centre is run by the church, but it, it's open to women from every background. And in Lebanon, there are 18 different recognised sects, different types of Islam or Christianity or Druze. And uh, a lot of those different social groups just don't mix at all outside you know normally they would avoid each other 
especially because of the civil war, people are suspicious of each other and they just socialize within their family groups or or other people from the same sect. And there's a lot of sort of suspicion. Um, and one of the reasons for this Women's Centre is for bringing people together from all different backgrounds as equals and learning together and just being friends together. And uh, that's its main purpose, really. Although it does other things like giving women training in hair and beauty and things like that to give them qualifications to earn their own living. Uh, and they also teach computer skills and languages and things like that. I was there teaching English mostly. There are women there from every age group uh, and every background, but a lot of them are older women who, you know, they've been wives and mothers and now their husbands have died and their children have left home or even left the country for work and they just feel a bit lost, like they've lost a sense of identity and their role in the world. And they can't work because they've never had any jobs. They married when they were maybe 19 or 20 or something. So they have no skills to bring to the workplace. And uh, anyway, it's difficult for women to work in Lebanon. The younger generations do, but the older generations never have. So the centre is just available for them to come and socialise or to learn new skills, just to get them out of the house, really. There is one lady whose husband died about four years ago, and since then she's lost several other members of her family due to accident or ill health. And, uh, you know, uh, in the Middle East, women would wear black when they're mourning, and they have this saying that black brings black, because once you start wearing it, then you never get to stop wearing it because more people die. And in her case, it's been true, because every time she's about to start wearing colours again, someone else dies. And I think that in itself is really depressing to be reminded constantly of your mourning and your loss and everything. And her two sons have now left the country for work because there's very low levels of employment in, in Lebanon. And a huge brain drain. The most uh, educated young people are all leaving to go to Saudi Arabia or the Gulf or America, anywhere, because mm. there's no work in Lebanon. She came to every class that she could, <laughs> and uh, the centre also gave her money to be able to do it, and they, they let her do some things for free because they knew her situation, she has no income, and it's, it's very difficult for her. And she just feels that the, the centre is her, her lifeline, really. Because the centre is Christian, it's run by the church, then everyone already knows where we come from. So that's actually, that's a help. That's mm. half of the talking done. Mm. And the rest is how you relate to people, how you welcome them, how you love them, how you manage a class, <laughs> everything, even the tiny details they notice. They notice how you relate to them. And if you can say that you've really genuinely related to them all as total equals, I think that says quite a lot. And um, it's rare that the conversation would actually turn to really deep matters of religion because people are a little bit anxious about that, a bit nervous about that but subjects do come up, especially in my conversation class because you're just talking we're not, we're not just learning the basics of English so sometimes I would never raise a subject but they would raise things you know, really difficult topics too because they've lived through civil war they, and I, I will never understand that, I'll never understand the difficulties of that but they know things about forgiveness that I don't know about because they've had to forgive their neighbours for killing off their families. And if you touch on any of these subjects, real, real conversation happens. I feel like the Lebanese 
are really alive, if that makes sense. They're really living. And maybe it's because they've lived so close to death and they know the dangers of, of war and things like that. But they're alive. I don't know how to explain it better than that. But um, that, that's one of the most beautiful things about Lebanon. Lebanon needs prayer that it'll stay peaceful, that it won't be affected by the problems in Syria, which are creeping over the border, of course. Prayer for the church to to be strong and to be courageous and to work together and prayer for the Women's Centre, of course, for its amazing work and for the people I've, I've encountered along the way. Our mission partner, who has now returned from Lebanon, encouraging prayer for the country and the wider region at both the personal and political level. This month's reflection comes from Joe Hazelton, CMS Regional Personnel Officer for Latin America. This month's interviews talk about the areas in the Middle East where conflict means that people are choosing or are forced to live away from home or to be left behind by those who do leave. Reverend Bassi Mazania speaks of how God prepared her for his work in ways that she could not have understood until after she had to leave Iran. Michael Green speaks of sharing with those affected by the displacement and living close to conflict. And Marjorie Gourlay reflects on what it has been like for some of those who have been left behind and the amazing forgiveness she has seen even where friends or neighbours have hurt each other so badly due to the difficulties, hardship and chaos brought by conflict. There are many conflicts recorded throughout the Bible, but it is God's preparation of his people to share with those who are hurting and to forgive those who are hurt that I wanted to highlight in this reflection for Audio Mission. Jesus himself faced conflict and suffering throughout his life, living as he did in occupied territory under a military dictatorship. But throughout his ministry he prepared others in their calling, shared with those who were hurting, and gave guidance on forgiveness in a deeply personal way which met each person's innermost needs. The question for us is how can we follow Jesus' example to do this effectively in our own lives? Pope Francis recently spoke in an interview about God always considering the person first, and the interviews in this edition of Audio Mission speak of sharing close relationships which offer personal support, and God working through people he has called to shine his light into the lives of others. As exemplified in these interviews, we can prepare through prayer and a relationship with God, and share our lives, our love, and where needed, our forgiveness with one person at a time, one conversation at a time, one day at a time. That was Joe Hazelton bringing this audio mission prayer focus to a close. Thank you for your prayers.